The difference between this world going green, stopping the use of fossil fuels, stopping destroying your future, is the character of about a thousand people. The Sustainable Hour. For a green, clean, sustainable Geelong. The Sustainable Hour. Welcome to the Sustainable Hour. We'd like to acknowledge that we're broadcasting from the land of the Wathaurong people. We pay tribute to the elders, past and present, and those that earn that great honour in the future. We're broadcasting from stolen land, land that was never ceded, always was and always will be Aboriginal land. We can't hope to have any form of climate justice until we have justice for First Nations Australians. And then uh, if we can wake up, uh, we have so much to learn in that ancient wisdom as we navigate the climate crisis that is descending all around us, all over the planet. For 30 years, We've missed our targets. For 30 years, every year we make commitments here at COP and then emissions go up. Why? Because we keep building more and more of what we know is killing us. Five million people died this year just from lethal heat alone. Seven million people died this year from air pollution predominantly due to fossil fuels. Today, fossil fuels are our weapons of mass destruction. But the good thing is we don't need them anymore. Renewables are cheaper, we can do this, but we can only do it if we do it together. Sabora Berman from Canada, she's chair of the Fossil Fuel Non-Proliferation 3D and spoke at one of the many side events that there is at the COP28 in Dubai. And that's the point, isn't it? Renewables are getting cheaper by the day. And whatever the words from COP, it doesn't matter that much because we know that it's economics that steer where we're going. And this is an interesting topic, isn't it? We're going to be talking about that in the Sustainable Hour today. But as usual, let's first hear what's been happening around the world. Over to you, Colin Market, OAM, with your global outlook. Good morning, Mick. And of course, our world roundup this week begins in Dubai at COP28. It's the big show. There, America's climate envoy, John Terry, held a surprisingly upbeat and frank press conference that switched from dire warnings to praise China's efforts and then present a positive forecast with a strong message that America was now on an unstoppable course to meet its climate commitments and would achieve it, even if Donald Trump wins next year's election. He said there was a sense of urgency at COP28 that it hadn't been present at previous summits. He said it was recognised that the only way to hit the critical target of net zero emissions by 2050 was through a phase-out of fossil fuels, which directly addressed the biggest issue facing negotiations at the United Arab Emirates. If you're going to reduce the emissions and you're actually going to hit the target to net zero by 2050, you have to do some phasing out, he said. There's no other way to get to the target. This is 
crunch time. The Arctic is at a crazy rate of melting. And you look at the fires in Greece and Australia, Russia and around the world. Come on, what else do you need? He called the first seven days of the Dubai conference a pretty darn good week, naming progress on loss and damage arising from climate change, a pledge to triple renewable energy, and a methane trust fund to help reduce flaring and emissions of the powerful greenhouse gas. Left him feeling a different sense of mission and urgency than before. He also gave credit to China for working harder to try to transition more rapidly. But he said difference remained over the challenge of new coal. Asked by a US journalist if a change in government in 2024 US presidential elections would derail progress such as the Biden administration's Inflation Reduction Act, which aims at to triple clean energy capacity by 2030, Terry made it very clear. In other words, what happens if a certain person is elected, he said, acknowledging that Donald Trump as president pulled out of the Paris Agreement. Over a thousand US mayors and 37 governors all kept moving forward on the things that they pledged to do, Kerry said. So even when Donald Trump was president, 75% of new electricity in the United States came from renewables. Trump may have pulled out of the Paris Agreement, but I'm telling you, the American people stayed to that agreement. We will get to a global low-carbon, no-carbon economy and we will get there. The only question is, will we get there in time to avoid the worst consequences of this crisis? Since last week, COP28 has hosted leaders and representatives from almost 200 nations, and new attendance figures show that more than 100,000 are in Dubai for the conference. Australia's climate change and energy minister, Chris Bowen, was typically evasive and non-committal. He told ABC Radio the government would support stronger language on that sort of thing, that's fossil fuels, but he wouldn't be drawn on any specifics. In my experience, he said, you go into these negotiations with a degree of flexibility, but you also go in pushing for stronger and more action. That's what I'll be doing. Says nothing at all, which is quite typical of Australian governments at all of the COPs. Meanwhile, the OPEC plus oil cartel's latest meeting demonstrated to the fossil fuel industry something that everybody else in the world has known for years. And that is you can't trust the fossil fuel industry at all. It's addicted to telling lies even to each other. Now, we know from the last two weeks world roundups that the cartel was holding meetings in order to agree to cut the production of oil in the world uh, in order to drive up the price against the background of the accelerating take-up of EVs and the consequent drop in demand for petrol and diesel. Since last Thursday, they announced that they reached an agreement to cut their production by 2.2 million barrels a day. That's a bit over 2%. But then oil prices went down by more than 8.5 
US dollars a barrel. Now, that was uh, because, quite simply, countries agreed to cut the production and then carried on before, or some might even have increased their supply. You have to remember here that they're dealing with countries like Saudi Arabia, Russia, Iran, and Iraq, who simply can't be trusted to do what they say. Of course, it could be that the price drop is due to a drop in demand, because oil prices are volatile and subject very much to the demand. But it certainly looks like the oil production cartel is in disarray and doesn't know what to do about the double threat of falling prices, while at the same time demand is reducing. Now, we just need the same thing to happen with the supply of coal and gas, and we'll know that the world is certainly moving in the right direction. And that little bit of hopeful news ends my roundup for the week. Listen to our sustainable hour for the future. Our first guest today is Colette Harmson. Now, we often have people on the show who are committed to climate action, but I'm not sure if we've had anyone quite so committed as Colette is. She's just recently come out of jail in Tasmania, uh, where she was jailed for three months for actions to protect the forest. Colette, welcome. Thanks for coming on the show. Uh, thanks for having me. You're taking part in an action right right now in the forest in Tassie? That's correct. We've got a we've got a coop that's been cut down with some beautiful old trees and we have a tree set and that tree set is attached to three machines and we've had forestry come in and check us out and we're just waiting to see if the cops show up. Now the three months you spent in prison obviously haven't haven't uh dampened your desire to protect forests. So why are you continuing to take pass? Because obviously if you've, if you've just come out of jail there, they, uh, you're going to be seen uh, and possibly action take against you. Why doesn't that stop you doing what you're doing? Uh, I guess because um, I'm just so passionate about protecting what native forests we have left. And um, I think the government and the legal system and the police, they're all um, complicit in, in the climate emergency by promoting, protecting and even, you know, arresting protesters who are peacefully demonstrating the ludicrousy of what's going on in the forests here in Tassie. And getting back to your time in jail, is that something you you expected to happen? Yes, yeah, and no, I was expecting a jail term. I had a three-month suspended jail term with me for some time. I'm just going to say now I'm parked beside a road and a log truck might come past, so I can mute that when it happens or, yeah, if that works best for you. Sure. All right, there's one coming now, so I'll okay. mute my sound. It'll come Good. past. Good, Colette. While it's going past and you're muted, I have three questions that came from that first bit. Number one, whereabouts exactly in Tasmania are you protesting about the destruction of the forest? Number two, what are you doing actually that's causing the police to come and, and what are you doing to try and halt their logging? And number three, when you were in jail, were you treated differently than the other prisoners by the other prisoners? 
uh, we are in northwest Tasmania. Mm -hmm. So we're right near the border of the area that we want made into a Tarkine National Park. Uh, and uh, it's an area that the the local people here have have fought very hard to keep their remaining native forest available to stay as native forest and to be visited and that sort of thing. There is quite a large amount of uh, plantation here as there is all around Tasmania, unfortunately, but this little patch is... Um, is native forest and has some beautiful rainforest species and and uh, fantastic habitat for um, species uh, and so yeah so we're right on the edge of the Tarkine uh, and we are in a, a logging coop that has begun they've begun logging there's five machines uh, currently in there and the reason the police are on their way or likely on their way to us this morning is because um, we have stopped work in that logging coop. Um, the contractors arrived just after five this morning to commence work, but uh, we had, uh, I guess, formed a, a blockade, a protest in, in that place uh, so that they can't chop down the trees today. Yeah. And... Um, the third question was about jail. Um, yeah, I, I didn't know what to expect uh, in jail, but I wasn't afraid of it. And um, I was pleasantly surprised that the inmates were were really quite um, – That I guess they thought me to be a bit of an oddity, a little bit weird that I'd choose to put myself in a position where I'd end up in jail. Uh, but they were friendly, um, warm, welcoming. Um, yeah, so it was quite, it, it was not a negative experience for me being in jail, um, which was a relief. Uh, but I guess that's my privilege showing, isn't it? Where I'm a middle-aged white woman who uh, doesn't have too many uh, responsibilities. So I can take that step and, and make the choice to, to go to jail to try and make a stand against the logging and the, the whole climate emergency that's unfolding right before our eyes. Um, I guess the thing that surprised me in jail was that the the officers were not, um, they went out of their way to be a little bit difficult with me, but I guess all that did was meant that the inmates um, were nicer to me because they could see me being kind of targeted by the officers. That's surprising, isn't it? Did you feel like you might have even converted one or two of the inmates? Um, there was certainly, I mean, all the inmates that I spoke to um, were well aware of what was going on in the environment and they, they were all very much of the opinion that not enough's being done to to look after our planet. So that was um, that was nice to to discover. Um, you know, some of them certainly aren't Greens voters or supporters of environmental things, but they all they all recognise that there's there's a lot going on that that shouldn't be in the out there in the big wide world. And uh, some of them were quite supportive. Um, of me and and of the whole urgency around climate and um, yeah I think that meant that um, my time in prison was not too scary and um, yeah I think there'd be a few people who who would consider going to a protest in the future yeah right 
And the surprise, as you say, was that the officers were very much against you. Do you think that this was in solidarity with the police or other, do you think that they might be anti-environment? Certainly some of them, um, I would imagine, based on what they said and did, I would imagine they are very right-wing and uh, maybe sort of more focused on jobs and growth rather than a, a safer planet. So so that, that was evident in, in some of the people, yeah. When you're in jail, what sustained you? Like three months is a long time, and if you're getting well, heat from the the guards there, what keeps you going? What sustains you? Um, I had a, a fantastically large number of people write to me in prison uh, and it was really lovely getting their words of encouragement and support and and I, I tried really hard to answer as many as I could um, and just to, you know, thank them and also maybe encourage them to step out of their comfort zones and maybe take a little step towards direct action I guess that's that's where I'm I'm focusing um and uh it was it felt like a community of like-minded women and and you know they recognized that I was similar to them in that I repeatedly broke the law so um so there was that solidarity with the other inmates that that was um that made it a lot more pleasant to to uh, be there for that time. And have you been um, treated differently once you got out? Because you're now an ex-jailbird. Uh, um, the only people that that know about my jail time, I think, are, are quite supportive already of of the whole cause, um, and so there's really just support and solidarity um i guess i i really hoped that by serving a jail term it would encourage other people to maybe just take a little a little step towards a bit more action mm. uh so that's yeah that was what i was hoping for colette tell us about your relationship with the forest and and the trees the, the reason that got you into jail I guess um, all my life I've been really passionate about wildlife and about forests. Um, I've just been drawn to them. I love everything about them, the colours, the bird song, the soil, the whole lot is just so beautiful and earthy and, and warm. I love hugging trees um, and uh, I just feel like A forest is just so so nurturing to everything that lives in it. Um, I'm also a little bit a- averse to sunshine, <laughs> so I uh, I feel quite you know freaked out about there not being shade, shady places, and the and the planet warming up. So a forest to me is a a cool, beautiful environment where you can just relax and and enjoy the surroundings um but also being very aware of of all the things that rely on it to live and to survive can you give our listeners a, a sense of the land there the tarkine yeah sure um the area known uh known as the tarkine 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 
uh, is in northwest Tasmania. It's quite a large, I can't give you a figure of how many hectares, but it's something like 500,000 hectares of absolutely beautiful wilderness, uh, especially the rainforest. So there's a lot of rainforest in northwest Tasmania that is still untouched, hasn't been logged, uh, but is under threat. And the whole area is under threat because none of it is currently protected. And so there are logging threats, mining threats, roading threats, a um, whole lot of things that uh, that seem to come up every time you look away. There's a new project that you've got to have a look at and see how much damage it's going to do. Uh, but, yeah, it's the... Um, I think it's the largest cool temperate rainforest in the southern hemisphere. Um, might want to fact check that, but um, but uh, the the rainforest itself just has an amazing array of species. The plants, and I'm not particularly a plant person. I'm I'm more of an animal person. But the plants um, are just so beautiful to look at, um, and the species are so unique to the Tasmanian temperate rainforest. You've got your myrtle uh, myrtle trees that grow hundreds and hundreds of years old. You've got sassafras, and sassafras has a most beautiful smell. You've even got in some areas some hue and pine remaining, but also, um, yeah, the, just the whole gannet of species there. That And just the way the, the colours, the green colours come out at you, you almost feel like you're on some psychedelic trip when you go in there because it's just so mind-blowingly beautiful. And uh, something that's really, really, people really enjoy is seeing the moss that grows on the trees. So you've got these, you know, 60, 70-metre trees and they've got moss hanging off them. And when it's raining, it drips and has its own, like, little ecosystems. And um, it's just such a fantastic beautiful thing to see and it's just so heart-wrenchingly awful to know that just in a few days they can come in and and devastate an entire ecosystem and take out these you know half a century old trees uh with no thought about it at all we covered your protest last week in the world roundup actually colette and uh, if my memory serves me right it's uh it's 600,000 acres or hectares, and it's referred to as Australia's Amazon, Australia's version of the Amazon rainforest. Yeah, that's right. Um, Charles Woolley did a piece where he, he said that about it, and uh, I think it was, oh, I can't remember the commercial channel, I think it was Channel 7 Spotlight or something like that. And he, he did a really beautiful piece with um, very emotive with the music and the colours and the, the filming. And he did a really good job um, to, yeah, to give people who maybe wouldn't ordinarily get a taste of, of that kind of wilderness, they got a chance to, to see it and to experience it. Uh, and, yeah, yeah, it's, um, it's mind-blowing and it's also devastating to know that it's totally under threat and mm. it's not protected. What animals are threatened in the forest at this moment? Um, so my protests um, with the Bob Brown Foundation, we do them all over Tasmania. 
uh, in threatened forests um, to kind of Tarkine, where we are now, um, has a lot of threatened species living in the forests, including things like uh, mast owls, wedge-tailed eagles, grey goshawks. Uh, Tasmanian devils are a, a particular favourite of mine because I worked with the Tasmanian government on the Save the Tasmanian Devil program for many years. Uh, but also quolls, a spotted tail quolls are endangered. Uh, and yeah, a lot of other animals such as the giant freshwater crayfish. It's only found in some of the uh, pristine rivers in the Takaina, Tarkine area. And there's very few of them left. But yeah, so, so there are a lot of um, fauna that are desperately holding on and um yeah we shouldn't be destroying any of their habitat because they're already highly threatened species the circle of life and and we're very much part of it unfortunately the loggers don't quite get that no yeah. well forestry tasmania um is the government run company here in tasmania and they pretty much just uh, pick and choose what they want to log and uh, seem to be that they're, they're totally exempt from the EPBC Act, the Environment and Biodiversity Protection Act. Uh, and so it doesn't even matter how endangered a species is, uh, such as in um, New South Wales, if there's a, is it a greater glider, um, if one of those is found in a coop, the entire operation shuts down because it's an endangered species. But here in Tasmania, endangered species aren't offered um, that protection. They don't have to do anything if there are endangered species in the coop. They're going to go and cut all the trees down in. Tambran are proposing to drill and frack 12 new wells in the Beagle Basin in the Northern Territory. This is late stage exploration, which means with these 12 wells, they are looking to establish whether there's enough gas to move to a large scale fracking industry in the NT, which would mean hundreds or thousands of wells potentially. The EDO have been engaged by CAFA, the Central Australian Frack Free Alliance, to basically fight for us in court. So we, we're the plaintiff in um, this legal action and uh, the EDO will be working on our behalf, actually. This project is part of a much larger shift towards a full-scale fracking industry in the NT. And so the impacts will be, effectively, it's putting us on a path towards developing masses of fracking wells in the NT and the huge climate impacts that that will cause, as well as, of course, impacts on the water um, and a huge cost that the community will have to bear in cleaning up after this industry. You think about the generations to come and you think about what we're going to hand over to those people, be it young people and obviously older people and, um, and, and to everybody, to humanity, really. So I actually, I believe this is catastrophic. The Environmental Defenders Office are people who are actually, I think they're crusaders really, because they're here to be able to do what's right to save our, um, our futures and our environment. So I would say that everybody needs to consider supporting the EDO. Our other guest today is Tim Forsey. Now, Tim started off the Facebook group, My All Electric Home, uh, not all that long ago, but he currently has, I understand, 120,000 followers. 
on that side. Is that right, Tim? And welcome. Uh, yeah, thanks. Thanks for having me today. The Facebook group is called My Efficient Electric Home. And so folks can find that on Facebook. And we're just about to hit 108,000 members. We've been going for eight years. And in recent years, it's doubled every year. So you could say we were at like 50,000 last year. And, uh, you know, whether we'll hit 200,000 anytime soon, I'm not sure. But um, what it is, it's a forum for people to uh, understand, work out ways to improve their homes. A lot of folks would be interested in reducing their energy bills or getting more onto the renewable energy, making their homes more comfortable, more sustainable, reducing emissions. And uh, boy, it just it just goes and goes and goes. We might get 30 or 50 posts a day and probably thousands of comments as people are helping each other from things such as, you know, what do you think about this quote I just got from my solar panels right down to... Um, you know, should I be draft proofing this part of the house and how do you go about it? So, uh, yeah, that's one of the things I do. And your your background, Tim, let me tell, tell our listeners um, what that's been and, and the your transition to what you're doing now. Sure. I trained in university as a chemical engineer and worked in industry for 30 some years, um, starting off in petrochemicals. So that's how you make chemicals and plastics out of fossil fuels. Uh, and then at one point, you might notice I've got a bit of an accent. So I grew up in America, but permanently migrated to Australia, to Melbourne, uh, working at that time with BHP in their oil and gas division. But uh, yeah, I finished up with BHP in 2010. It was because, um, I, I was, you know, we were aware of the whole climate situation, the climate crisis dating back to like 1992. Of course, that's when there was the first uh of those uh, UN meetings in Rio. And so we were, were were well aware. At that time, I was working with Exxon. So companies like Exxon were, were well aware of the climate situation. I guess initially, I might have hoped that, you know, there'd be some feedback mechanism that would kick in like the clouds or something. So that would protect us. But as the science became clear, um, yeah, I had to get out of the fossil fuel business in about 2010. Um, but the way I put it is that I just I no longer could share the enthusiasm that my management had for getting fossil fuels out of the ground as fast as possible and burning them. So, Tim, with with your background, you know, having been inside a, a fossil fuel company, where do you think they are today? Do you think they're still celebrating when they, they find more oil, gas, coal? Or yeah, yeah. yeah. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I see it on LinkedIn. I don't have necessarily a lot of connections on LinkedIn in that business. And maybe some of them uh, unfollow me or run away. <laughs> I'm not sure. But yeah, I've been out for 13 years. That's that's quite some time. I do worry about the, um, you know, the the mental state, the psychology of the people that remain there, particularly in the leadership. Um, you know, are they basically psychopaths by this point? You, you got to ask the question. Um, I mean, you look at BHP, for example, uh, they've largely gotten out of um, well, they, they got out of coal and gas, sold that, and they got out a lot of the thermal coal. I think they still do the metallurgical coal, but, um, you know, they, were, they weren't the greenest company going, but, um, you know, they just decided, look, they could make money on other things such as copper or you name it. And uh, so they made some changes. And so you see a, you know, you've got, you know, certainly some remaining large uh, oil and gas companies, the Shell, the BP, the Exxon, and, and then you have the smaller the smaller players that maybe get into the fracking and then they grow the business and then like someone like Exxon comes along and buys them. And in Australia, 
you know, we got some relatively large companies, the Woodside and the Santos. So right now they're in merger talks because um, you're probably finding fewer and fewer people that want to be in this business. So you're going to get down to a small number of companies, but gee, they're powerful and uh, have a lot of money. You know, they could spend billions in in lobbying, you know, just trying to keep their business going for another year where they make even more billions. So, you know, why wouldn't you spend that as much as you could on the to own the politicians and get them doing your bidding? So, so that's what's going on. Yeah, I got I got real concerns for the uh, the uh, the psychological state of the leaders of those companies. The difference between this world going green, stopping the use of fossil fuels, stopping destroying your future, is the character of about a thousand people, gutless characters who get around in pinstripe suits and try and say that they're looking after the world's interests when in fact they're lacking character and courage to change. This is cold. Don't be afraid. Don't be scared. At the heart of this conflict is a battle between truth and science and power and lies. I'll just play a little ad here that Shell Energy Australia put out. It's just 30 seconds. Is that absolute greenwashing or is Shell getting serious here? Zero starts here and it starts here. Zero starts here too. And here. It can even start here and here. Wherever you are on the energy journey, we can help. We know energy. And together we can build a better energy future. Shell Energy, powering business towards net zero. So I, I see that's an ad for helping businesses, and I, I guess I'd even want to check that it's up to date because, look, I don't read everything in the news that goes by. It's a bit too depressing. Um, but in recent times, Shell has actually backed off from some of the things they had claimed and said they were going to do in terms of investing in renewables, etc., so I wonder if that ad is even up to date. That ad yeah, is a they, year old, Tim. It's a year old. So in the last year, Shell has really <laughs> reduced their their interest in this space. So there you go. They they come and go. You know, they'll make a big big uh, you know about, amount of news that they're making progress due to some pressure somewhere, and and they will throw some money at it. Again, you could they could afford to throw billions at it, not expecting it to to make any money if it uh, keeps somebody off their back. But then a new management team will come in and say, well, why are we wasting all the money there? We'd be better off putting that money toward owning the politicians. And so then they then they back off and it's pretty obvious you can see, you know, where they're not spending money doing anything good. And, you know, there'll be a pendulum, a cycle. And so I'm sure five years from now, the show will be back, you know, saying how green they are. But doesn't it come to a, like, I call it the MP3 moment, you know, in the music industry, we saw, was it 10, 15 years ago? maybe 20, where uh, in the beginning, all the CD companies were so confident that, you know, CDs was the future of, of music and they they owned the music industry. And within just a couple of years, the MP3 file, the invention of the digital distribution of music, completely wiped out the CD industry. And it seems to me now that renewables are cheaper than fossil fuels, it must come to that point very soon where the fossil fuel industry will not stop because of regulation but simply because people are going elsewhere and getting their electricity instead of their fossil fuels well um you know if you can lobby if you're the fossil fuel industry and if you can lobby a government to um 
to allow you to do the exploration, do the development of some oil and gas. It doesn't cost a lot of money to keep producing that. So the real the real danger here, of course, is as we keep approving new projects yeah. that, you know, they'll spend a lot of money up front. And this is all all before, you know, your turning point that you're looking for. But then to just keep running them and pulling this stuff out of the ground, that does it. That's that's pretty cheap to do. And so they can keep doing that for, you know, as long as that stuff lasts, which, of course, is really going to kill the planet. So, um, yeah, that that's the concern. We need to stop approving these things because once they get a, a life, they'll go on and and we'll be able to compete with with renewables because it's it's not really that hard to keep the valves open and to keep the oil and gas flowing out of the ground once you've spent all the money up front for the for the equipment. Hey Tim, when you were working in the chemical and oil industry, were you a lone voice or uh, did you have others who were sort of putting up with it with you? And how just how difficult did they make it and using what methods did they use to make uh, life difficult for you that forced you out of the industry? You know, I was one, you know, greener person. You know, I grew up on a dairy farm. So, um you know, I, I was very familiar with con conservation. So I'm a conservationist for sure. Am I conservative? I'm a conservationist. And so even when I initially was working in industry, you know, we tried not to waste things. And that's the way to make money. You know, you don't want to be wasteful. You want to be efficient and do all that. So I was always um, had a focus in that area, even in working in the oil and gas business. I mean, you can do it less wastefully or more wastefully. Um, but uh, but eventually I just couldn't couldn't do it, as I was saying. Um, no, I've, I've probably been a bit disappointed that I haven't really seen a lot of people follow me out of the industry. Uh, even after 13 years, I'm kind of still waiting. I think people say, now I'll just keep going until I, I retire. So I'm not going to be aborting this thing, you know, while I can still be making some money. And, um, you know, when I was in the last days there, I was working with BHP. Look, I even did the Al Gore training, you know, where you get trained up on climate change and then you do presentations. And as I said, the BHP management right up to the head of the company at that time, Chip Goodyear, you know, he he was sat down and he watched uh, the Al Gore movie. His statement was, well, this is something we should have a look at. <laughs> he was, you know, not not committal one way or the other as to, um, you know, what we do after we had a look at it. Um, and as, as for myself personally, look, I, you know, as I said, I lost a lot of enthusiasm. And if I was helped a bit out the door, well, they probably did me a favor and got me out of there a bit faster because uh, that was the right answer. Tim, you mentioned or you referred to the industry or up the upper executive senior executives as psychopathic and you know, like that's a, a mental illness and i'm just wondering though how, how what justification have the politicians have should we be putting the same description onto them i mean he, he's they know well they're not most of them aren't stupid they know the consequence of continuing to approve fossil fuel projects, right? And they know the impacts that's going to have on the whole world, including their kids. They choose to ignore that. I'll look at the, at the next election, you know, um, vote for the person who you think is going to make the difference. Um, now, I'd put like a Chris Bowen in a less psychopathic situation. I mean, he probably justifies it by saying, look, if I step too far, well, guess what? You're going to get the Dutton government. And, and is that going to be better? Um, I suppose we need structural change where, you know, the uh, fossil fuel industry just can't throw so much money at, at both parties. And then we'd and then we'd see what would happen. Um, 
that's the change we need. You know, in Victoria, for example, at the state level, we're making good progress. Uh, Victoria, some time ago, said that we would not have any fracking anywhere uh, on the land of Victoria. I mean, the people, the people spoke. Uh, there was a lot of uh, grassroots activity there to uh, make people aware what could happen with the fracking, and so that public support got back to the government. and They made the right call. So, um, yeah, vote. You know, vote for the the right people and get active. Uh, get out there and try to make the change. And, you know, there's always another election coming along. This is Jane Fonda. I'm, I'm speaking to you from the United States. The fossil fuel industry and major fossil fuel producing nations have been derailing climate action since the beginning of UN climate talks. They're standing in the way of a fair, fast, and financed transition away from oil, gas, and coal at humanity's expense. They've also been polluting our national and subnational politics. They work hard and spend a lot of money to deceive us. The four biggest oil companies, Chevron, ExxonMobil, Shell, and Total Energies, spent more than $750 million in 2021 on climate marketing. They're trying to say that they're green, and it's greenwashing. They're touting that they're part of the solution. They subvert democracy by buying off elected officials. In 2020, they spent $139 million on U.S. federal elections, buying off Democrats as well as Republicans, you know, which is which is why here in my country, we can't get policies passed that are commensurate with what science demands. They have a stranglehold over our government, and I'm sure it's the same in other countries. In no way are fossil fuel companies working to combat the climate crisis. It's, it's the absolute opposite. They're planning enough production to lock in climate catastrophe. We need governments to regulate the fossil fuel industry rather than invite them to the negotiating table or make them secretary of state, as you know who did. We need binding commitments and plans to move away from oil, gas, and coal, not more watered-down words and inaction. And it'll, it's going to take people-powered movement, like nothing we've ever seen before, to force this to happen. But we can do it. We can do it. It's why I work with Greenpeace on Fire Drill Fridays. We need to get unprecedented numbers of concerned people all over the world, nonviolently into the streets. It's like what happened in the spring of 2019 with the brave and inspiring young people, but this time with even bigger numbers. And we need to do this fast. We don't have time. Hey, Tim, getting back to your website, how many people do you reckon you are converting to all electric homes per week? Uh, I don't know. Well, we're, you know, we're about the only statistics I can get you is, uh, you know, recently we've had 100 new members a week. And so people aren't joining because they don't because they want to do nothing. So they're, they're joining and they're, you know, they'd be getting some ideas how to improve their homes and you know, any improvements probably going to reduce fossil fuels. And um, if, if they can work it all out, you completely get off the get off the gas. That's certainly mm -hmm. a strong focus. Um, a lot of homes in Victoria still use gas, uh, you know, in, in the ACT, South Australia, even New South Wales. And um, you got a real win-win capability here. Sure, it's a fossil fuel, so we shouldn't use it. But also, we have cheaper options these days. So, 
you know, set your house up properly, heat your house with a reverse cycle air conditioner. That's a device that gets free renewable heat out of the thin air outside your house. So the fossil fuel industry definitely can't compete with that one. You can use the same heat pump technology to heat your water, get it a, an electric cooktop because, um, you know, it's pretty unhealthy to be burning gas in your home anyway. And uh, then you don't need to have a, a gas bill for the rest of your life. Um, get mm. get off the whole the whole grid there. I often present in public, and a first question I might ask the audience is, "Put your hand up if you want to get a gas bill for the rest of your life." And you know, I've not had anybody put their hand up. Mm. The thing about that the Facebook group, Tim, is just how solid a community it is, and how how helpful it is, and how collaborative it is. There's no competition at all. It's just they're all on the same journey. You must get a, a certain amount of satisfaction out, out of seeing that unfold. Oh, um, look, it's just one more thing to keep keep going. There's six other admins there that I'd like to recognize as, um, you know, getting involved every, every day, trying to trying to keep things organized. Um, oh, there's competition. I mean, one one supplier will say they've got a better heat pump than another and another insulating company may say they're the best insulator going around. So there's a little bit of competition. But um, no, it is, is a good source of information for people, those that use Facebook. There are other sources of information out there, such as by the not-for-profit organization Renew, or down at Geelong, Geelong Sustainability, put together the web with the website energytips.org.au. So there are other sources of information. But um, yeah, that Facebook, social media, can be used for good, uh, and hopefully this is an example of that. But we also know, Tim, that the uh, fossil fuel industry fights back in some pretty sneaky ways. You know that the uh, there is a cost to cutting gas off to your house once you've actually put uh, installed all electric into your things, into your um, appliances, and you then go back to your supplier and say, we don't want gas anymore, they'll charge you for not charging you the standing fees anymore, which seems ridiculous until you know that the fossil fuel people have got the ear of the um, all of these companies. Yeah, yeah, once you're totally off gas, as you say, you ring up your supplier and say, stop sending me a bill, and then there will be... Uh a fee that they'll try to stick you with um, to, you know, uh, get rid of the gas meter for one thing. You know, the gas is a hazardous material. So if you're not going to be using it on anymore on your property, well, you sure want to get rid of the stuff. I mean, you know, you if you didn't use petrol anymore, you wouldn't keep a, a few drums of petrol hanging around the property. You'd get rid of them because it's hazardous. Uh, so then the question is, who pays for the gas industry to get rid of that hazardous uh, infrastructure that's on your property? My son paid zero dollars. So if you kick up enough of a fuss, it may be possible to pay zero dollars. Where I live, um, people are paying $79. Uh, other places in Victoria, you might uh, end up paying $242. But if you're in, in Canberra, New South Wales, they might try to stick you for $2,000. Um, you know, it's definitely a cost for someone to come out and get rid of that meter. And so the question is, how is that paid for? Who pays um, either directly or indirectly? For years, the gas distribution businesses, um, whether they're government-owned government or not, well, if they're not government-owned, then they are a regulated monopoly. And so government does have the ability to, to call the shots here. Um, for example, in Victoria, one crowd had been trying to charge 
people $500 to disconnect. And the regulator came in and said, no, no, it won't be any more than $242. Um, where'd that number come from? You know, why didn't they just say $0? Why, why put up another barrier that's stopping people from electrifying, uh, particularly in Victoria, where the state government does realize that we do need to electrify? Probably this week, they're going to be coming out with an update to their gas substitution roadmap, um, which uh, does say a lot of good things about electrification. I know the state energy minister electrified her own home. Um, the state government realizes that the cheap gas that used to come out of the Bass Strait, well, that's finishing up. And they, you know, if we keep using the gas like we always have, they don't even know where necessarily where it'll be coming from if we get a cold week in winter. So the government's definitely supporting uh, degasification, electrification. So why charge people anything at all who've done the right thing to um, get off gas? especially when you look at the mechanics of how the charges work, that the companies have been charging a service fee even if you don't use any gas because it's summer, or for example, and you've only got a gas heater. They've still been charging service fees, so they've been taking money for no action at all. You would think that that money would be available for cutting the thing off, whereas the homeowner gets to save money from the moment that they cut off forward. So when you look at the impetus, it should be down to the supplier to pay for the removal of the meter rather than the recipient, the customer. Yeah, yeah like I said, there are regulated monopolies. So it'll be, you know, that this will be um, something that the governments and the, the suppliers discuss and, yeah, they should come up with a scheme that is not standing in the way of what we want to do, which is to electrify and to decarbonize. I mean, some even some green groups, when when that limit was put in at $242, even some green groups said, oh, this is a triumph. And I'm like, really? Uh, yeah, that, sure. It means you can't get hit for $500 or more. But, um, you know, why have any barrier at all to electrification? Tim, you mentioned a number of different figures for getting or having the gas infrastructure removed how, how does that come about no it's it, it is pretty random like i said you might you know put up enough of a fuss that you pay zero dollars but in new south wales or canberra you might be socked for two thousand um the you know these these suppliers they're they're regulated to a certain extent but uh yeah there you know can be just a lot of random things going on out there uh not, not necessarily any logic to it um the the gas meters need do need to be pulled back the whole thing needs to be made safe there are costs involved someone's going to pay those costs it's just a matter of whether an individual household should be aware that oh if you get off gas you have to pay two thousand dollars i mean that's really that's not an incentive to decarbonize is it no yeah and of course when you look at it as well in the in the last term the gas industry is very much a 19th century industry, whereas electricity is certainly the way of the future, 21st century, and you would think everybody would want to be on it. Have you got, uh, with your website, have you got a um, preferred order for householders to progressively remove gas from their homes? Well, well number one is for people to still be educated to use the air conditioner for heating that they already own. I mean, the gas industry likes to say it'll be expensive to electrify. And I'm like, in some homes, you know, they already got the equipment sitting there. It's a reverse cycle air conditioner. It's a wonderful device. 
it filters the air, it cools the air in summer, and you can heat your home with it in winter, and it's the, the cheapest way to do so. There are still millions of homes that have these things, and they're not fully using them as their winter heaters, either because it hasn't even occurred to them yet, or they've tried it, and maybe the filter's dirty, and so you need to clean the filter, or you know they're just not convinced uh, about the economics, but it is very clear. That's you know one of the reasons I started the Facebook group is now we just don't have five or ten case studies and, and homes like your or mine that are electrified. We've got thousands of them, and and everybody is say, seeing a big cost savings by doing something as simple as using the air conditioner that you already own. But um, certainly, you know, in the cooler climates like like Melbourne, the biggest use of gas is for the heating. And since you probably want to some form of, form of summer cooling anyway, in the form of a reverse cycle air conditioner, you know, that can certainly be the first thing to do is to get the reverse cycle air conditioner in there. Uh, for some homes, unfortunately, and even new homes may have been installed with ducted gas heating through the floor and evaporative cooling through the, through the ceiling. I call that the devil's combination because, sorry, you got to get rid of all that stuff and bring in, you know, one form of reverse cycle air conditioning or another, whether that's ducted or not. Uh, then onto the hot water, that'll be the next big user, the next larger uh, user of gas. And there are some very good incentives in a number of the jurisdictions, rebates, uh, renewable energy credits, et cetera, to be heating your water with a hot water heat pump. So do that. And and then there's the cooktop, which which again, you can do very quickly. It depends on you know what sort of cook you are and how interested you are in having the cleanest, healthiest air in your house. Burning gas produces uh, nitrous oxide in the home, which can contribute to childhood asthma. If you want to stop that tomorrow, you can go out and buy like a $75 portable induction cooktop, plug it into the wall. So people can be cooking with the electric induction uh, tomorrow if they want to go spend 75 bucks and get something to plug into the wall. So this doesn't really have to be that hard or that long and drawn out. I'm sure there can be barriers in our own kitchen. You know, we ended up buying a new piece of stone to uh, make the permanent uh, cooktop work at its best. But before that, we were using a portable. Uh, my daughter's just uh, fortunately been able to buy a house. It'll take them about two months to degasify that place. Uh, the air conditioning people are coming, you know, this week. The hot water heat pump people are coming the week after that. And then um, and then they are going to have a bit of countertop work. And so the permanent induction cooktop will go in uh, after that. So in a couple of months, um, they will fully uh, degasify that house, with, which was uh, totally on the gas previously. Because the problem is, moving to renewables, it's cheaper, cleaner, and better for everybody. Why wouldn't we do it anyway? We don't need any more oil and gas. Tim, thank you so much for sharing all this information. And let's definitely get more people. You say you get 100 uh, a week, uh, more people coming to your Facebook page. What's it called again? My Efficient Electric Home, uh, M-E-E-H. We've had 100, 100 people a day uh, in recent times, so 700 a week. Um, so here's here's some news beyond the, the Facebook group, My Efficient Electric Home. Um, actually, I'd, I'd done another podcast and a, a book publisher heard me on a podcast and said, write all that down. So uh, I've been asked to write a book and I've written that book. It'll be called the My Efficient Electric Home Handbook. And it'll be coming out in June 2024, published by uh, Murdoch Books, which is not Rupert. That's a division of Allen and Unwin. 
So I never wrote a book before. Um, people need information in all in all sorts of forms. The Facebook group will will continue. It's there. Uh, like I say, there are plenty of other resources out there, such as Geelong Sustainability's EnergyTips.org.au. But if someone wants a book, there's going to be a book available uh, in mid next year. Certainly, there are a lot of households who are saying, "Well, I'm not going to wait around for the you know the governments to try to fix it up. Um, we can make some changes." Uh, but then again, households shouldn't you know see themselves as the as the villains in all this. The uh, the fossil fuel companies, as we said before, are certainly doing everything they can to uh, stop progress. I'm just wondering if Colette has got any last minute comments to make. Yep. Uh, I'd like to say that um, we can't and we, we won't stop acting for our planet. Like, we, it's just something that we can't stop doing. Um, and so I think everyone uh, should find their own organisation um, near them, them that um, that promotes or or takes part in direct action. For me, in Tasmania, the Bob Brown Foundation, um, they actively get out there on the front lines and do direct action, and that's why I volunteer with them. But it, I just can't stop doing this because otherwise we're just going to lose all the precious things that are going to keep this planet healthy, and that's what drives me. So much more of a reason to be the difference. Yep. Be the difference, and that's a lovely note to finish on. A lot of what we talked about was what people could do in their own homes, and certainly you should do those things. But I totally support people acting at a, at the, a higher level as well. Join your local climate action group or whatever uh, group is out there taking action, making things happen at the uh, the higher level. Um, work to get the right politicians elected. So yeah, it goes far beyond to uh, beyond just uh, changing your hot water heater. Be the difference. Unless we leave fossil fuels in the ground, we have absolutely no hope of preventing climate breakdown. Because it's a bit like going on a diet and saying, okay, yes, I did eat a gigantic tub of ice cream and an enormous cake, but I also ate a salad, so why aren't I losing weight? doesn't matter how many wind turbines you put up, doesn't matter how many solar panels you put up, unless you're retiring fossil fuel infrastructure, unless you are legislating to leave coal, oil and gas where it belongs, which is in geological strata, you are going to cook the planet. It is as simple as that. And as a result of the highly effective and lethal fossil fuel lobbying, which has been a bugbear of these conferences, from the very beginning, from 1992, and has now got to such a ridiculous point that the president of COP28 is in his day job the chief executive of the UAE oil and gas company ADNOC, which is currently expanding its oil production. That is what has thwarted the simple things that need to be done. And while we wait and wait, the years tick by, and we've got so few years left now. We're going to have to take drastic action if we're going to avoid what could well be Earth systems collapse. I mean, this is the most important predicament humanity has ever faced. And by design, as a result of the enormous oppressive power of the fossil fuel industry, we're flunking it. So, be the difference.